I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. People have long recognized that good schools are important for a growing economy and a productive society. But just how important are they? That's the question that Eric Hanyashek, Jens Ruhos, and Ludger Wussmann have looked at in an article that Education Next published recently entitled, It Pays to Improve School Quality. I'm Paul Peterson, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and this is the Education Next podcast. I have with me Eric Hanyashek, the senior author of the article, to discuss their important analysis of the connection between our schools and our well-being. What they've done is they've looked at what happens in all of the 50 states. Rick, how would you summarize your key finding? What, do you, what would you say is the basic takeaway? The simplest takeaway is that if all states got to the level of our best state, um, we could get an economic gain that's four times our current GDP for the nation when you sum across all the states. Yeah, but, but, but uh, over what time period? I, I need to interrupt. Over, is, over what time period? Well, the gains stretch out into the future and keep going on into the future because we're looking at economic growth. But we've summed up the gains over an 80-year period, roughly the lifetime of somebody born today. But we've done that in a way that weights today a lot more heavily than the future because none of us want to wait 80 years to get the gains. So in other words, you're saying that it's worth over the next 80 years, we'll have as much growth as four times the size of the, our current economy. Right. That's the extra size of our economy over that period compared to what would happen if we didn't improve our schools. And it amounts to a number that nobody understands, $76 trillion. That's the value of improving our schools and getting to the level of Minnesota or Massachusetts on standardized tests of math and science. Now, how, how did you come to this conclusion? What's the, what's the way you looked at the data to, to generate this astounding number? Well, this is the first time that anybody has ever linked the quality of schools in every state to the economic returns and the gains that can be gained from improving schools. What's tricky about this is that the people in schools today are not the labor force of any state, and they won't be the labor force in the future because we have lots of migration within the United States. We have lots of immigration from abroad. And so the whole idea is to try to relate what a state does today to what the labor force in the future will look like. Once you've done that, we can then relate uh, the performance, which we, uh, the skills of the labor force, which we call the knowledge capital of each state, to economic growth. It turns out that there's a very direct relationship between knowledge capital and economic growth that we can expect in the future. 
So I see from the table that's or the figure that's in your paper that on average 55% of Americans remain in the state that they were born in uh, through uh, as they get into the workforce. So that's more than half. And, and is that the reason why a state really gains a lot from improving its schools? Because m- half of its workers, at least half of its workers on average, are going to be coming from its own schools. Well, certainly that's the very first element of it. Um, every state is, in fact, dependent upon the people they're producing, uh, according to historical migration patterns. But also, if other states are improving and sending their students to a given state, it, it's important that the other schools and other states are improving also. So. What we see here is that an individual state can come out ahead if it improves its schools, but also a state comes out more ahead if everybody's improving their schools because of the churning, the migration that goes on in the United States. So, Rick, you did this once before with Ludger Wissman, uh, and I worked with you on that project as well. Uh, and, and there we looked at international data how did how much benefits were there from getting up to the level of some of the leading countries around the world whether it was Canada or Germany or Finland or Singapore Um, so why did you feel you needed to do this kind of an analysis looking at the states within the United States instead of doing this cross-national comparison as you had previously done it Well, the cross-national comparison motivated us to do this um, and led us to see whether the same growth relationships that we saw internationally held for the U.S. states. But frankly, um, that doesn't appeal to lots of people in the United States and lots of decision makers. They think of that as a very abstract idea that if the whole U.S. got better, the economy of the U.S. would get better and they might get part of it. What we wanted to do was take this directly to where decision-making is being done, and that's at the state level, and show each state that they can gain, even if a number of their students leave and go to another state. There will be brain drain from every state, as we've seen in the past, but after you take into account the brain drain, it's still... I think the best rate of return investment that a state can make, and that's to improve its schools. Well, I can see how the international comparison could be the more powerful one because uh, most people who are born in the United States remain in the United States, and that's true for most countries. So if the United States is going to have a better workforce, it can't depend on immigrants coming in. Uh, Yes, a few will come in, and that's all great if they have had a great education, Uh, but... uh, by and large, you got to depend on your own people. But you're saying the same is true for the states, and if all states would improve, then every state would get the benefit not only of how they'd improve their schools, but also the benefits of their neighboring states and the other states that are sending them uh, workers. That's precisely the case. Um, the remarkable thing about this research is that when we go to the state level, we get 
almost precisely the same relationship between knowledge capital or the skills of workers and the growth rates of states. Um, so the previous work that uh, you and Luther and I had done on international comparisons really trickles down to the states, and you see that individual states can get the same kinds of gains that countries get. So this is a little bit of a check on the earlier research to see whether or not you uh, can actually get the similar kinds of results just looking within the United States. And, and maybe policymakers will pay a special attention to that because it's pretty hard to refute it that if the states that have good schools and, and high-performing students in the United States are the ones that are growing economically, well, the other states should pay attention to that. Well, that's precisely the case. And more than that, this is a particularly important time. As we know, the No Child Left Behind Act was replaced last fall with the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA. ESSA gives states a lot more latitude in how they design their accountability systems, how they measure performance, and what they do to try to improve performance. What we want to do is provide states with the motivation to do good things, to improve the quality of their schools. As we know, in situations like this, there's a tendency also for a race to the bottom, where some states will say, oh, we're out of the need to really push hard on, on schools because of no child left behind or federal pressure, and so we'll take the pressure off. Um, it would be inappropriate uh, from an economic standpoint for states to take the pressure off now because we are in intense international competition and we're in intense national competition for any state. Well, you know, it's amazing how little attention is ordinarily paid to that. Uh, we've had a big debate in Massachusetts about whether or not we should be making a big effort to bring General Electric uh, headquarters into uh, Massachusetts, and the governor succeeded at doing that, and everybody's saying hurrah. Um, but isn't that kind of thing maybe the transportation system or policies that will attract business or low taxes? or Aren't those, aren't those more effective strategies? Those are strategies that undoubtedly have some impact, but they are just overwhelmed by the skill of the labor force. What businesses look for and what dis businesses require is a highly skilled labor force if they're going to expand and grow and increase their productivity. And that's where the state should be concentrating the majority of their, evidence, uh, of their effort because that's where the gains are. Well, how did you take these other factors into account in your analysis? Did you, did you find some way of controlling for these other policies of the state when looking at um, the impact of educational quality? Well, we've looked at um, a variety of things, both internationally and in the U.S., uh, that might also influence the growth uh, of different states. Uh, we've looked at the capital stock and the historical patterns of where they are. And what we've, um, what we find is that it's the skills of the labor force that stand out. That's the systematic thing. 
So when you look at some of these other things and see how important they are, it's not like they're totally insignificant whatsoever, but they're just uh, you know tiny compared to the importance of the quality of the people available. Uh, so human capital is more important than any other kind of capital. Is that sort of what you're saying? Um, that's what I'm saying in the long run. Um, the, when there's more human capital, then in fact firms come in with physical capital and build facilities and take advantage of that human capital. But in, in, in the short run, all of these other things have some influence over the immediate period. But when we look at anything in the 40-year growth period that we're looking at, nothing matches the quality of the labor force, the skills of the labor force. Well, one of the things that's in the Education Next uh, website is a little uh, interactive graph that shows exactly what the benefits are for each and every state. Uh, can you just sort of uh, walk us through that a little bit? How, how, what are the benefits for California, for example, if they could, if they could improve? I don't know if you have that information right at hand. I do. But, uh, I do. The, the, um, the, what we did was to try to talk about a variety of different um, outcomes of state school policy. So the one that I mentioned before was that each state gets its students up to the level of Minnesota, uh, the best state over the last 20 years in the U.S. And there you get $76 trillion gains. Um, another policy would be that you take something akin to No Child Left Behind, which says that all students get up to a basic level of skills, or what NCLB called proficiency. Um, and for that, uh, California has 40% of its students that are below uh, NAEP basic, the National Assessment of Educational Progress basic uh, um, achievement levels. If California could bring its students up to a point where nobody was below the basic level, but do it over the next 15 years, uh, California could reap a gain that's three times its current GDP. So that raises an interesting question. You just made it very clear that if you can bring the very low performing students up to a basic level, of uh, achievement, a basic level of uh, uh, proficiency in uh, reading and math, that you would get huge returns. How about the best students? If you could bring the higher performing students up to a still higher level of performance, say up to the level of, that Minnesota attains, uh, do we have any way of knowing if you get comparable benefits from that? What we have is international evidence on that. We don't have that for individual states because it's really hard to trace the migration of the highly skilled people around the U.S. But internationally, we know that it pays to both bring up the bottom level, the, uh, bring everybody up to basic skills that I just talked about, or, and it pays also to have more rocket scientists, more people at the top. Now, it's hard to compare precisely which is more important, in part because we don't know how expensive it is to produce either really top people or bring everybody up to basics. But what 
we find by some rough estimates is that both give advantages to economic growth and both are in some sense equal, but that growth is even stronger when you do both at the same time, when you bring the bottom up and you push the top farther out. They interact, and what that simply means in uh, lay terms is that um, smart people who are designing new products and new production processes and so on can work, it can do even better things if they have a good workforce that will work on their products. Well, you, you, you uh, hear something like invest more in education here. You need to invest more in education. You'll get huge returns on that investment. But in some of your other work, you say, okay, but spending more on schools doesn't necessarily produce much of a result in terms of student achievement. So are you contradicting contradicting yourself here, or am I getting I that wrong? I don't think so. Um, when I, the language isn't very precise, and, and that gets us into all kinds of troubles in policy discussions. But by invest here, I'm really talking about get the outcomes of better schooling. And how we get those outcomes of better schooling is open to some disagreement, but what we've seen historically is that just putting more money into the current system doesn't reliably improve the performance of students. Some places it will work, some places it won't, but on average, we don't get the gains in terms of student achievement that we're looking at for the economic benefits. And so when I'm saying invest, it's a sloppy way of saying what we have to do is organize and support our schools in ways that improve achievement. Now, some of that might cost money, extra money. Some of it might not. Um, what we've learned over the long run is how you spend money is much more important than how much you spend. So if we could get students to take their education more seriously, uh, if we could get teachers to take the classroom uh, challenge more seriously, if we could get parents to support their children and the teachers, if we could do that and a few other things, we might not have to spend any more money, but we just make a lot more, be a lot better use of our resources. Well, that's precisely true. I mean, you raise all of the elements. The most important element of student achievement has to be the individual student. That's the one, the learner is out there. But we can support that learner through parents doing a better job and through schools doing a better job. And they all come together. Um, and ultimately what we want is to improve the skills of all of our students. It will help those students individually and it will help the nation as a whole. Well, some people have said that, look, at it's not that students uh, learning more in school pays off for society later on. It's that wealthier societies have better schools. So you've got a correlation here, but the correlation really goes the other way. Uh, how do you sort that out? Well, we spent a lot of time working on that, particularly in the international realm, and we use the international uh, evidence to support our current 
across state evidence. What uh, what we did was a series of very elaborate uh, tests that are common within economics to try to pin down whether whether there's a causal relationship between knowledge capital and growth. And I think that while it's not conclusive, it's very hard to be conclusive in, a, in an area where you can't run randomized control trials of individual countries. Um, while it's not conclusive, I think that it presents serious credible evidence that the um, relationship is a causal one, that if we improve the knowledge capital of a nation, we improve the growth rates. But the fallback position from that is that even if we're not completely right, um, you can just take our estimates of the impact of knowledge capital on growth and cut them in half. And if you cut them in half, you still get enormous numbers. Well, so you're that, yeah. Um, if we cut cut in half the economic gains from gain to Minnesota, we would be left with a mere thirty-eight trillion dollars. I mean, these are still numbers that are uh, extraordinary compared to other investments that we could make. Do you have any shining examples? Uh, do you have a state that sort of, you know? pulled its socks up and, and, and made some real progress with its schools, and, and you can see some downstream payoff? Is there? I know it's well, a, you, you don't want to rely on any one story like that, but, um, yeah. So part of the problem is that we've, um, we know that there are a number of states that have made quite extraordinary gains in their schools, enough to bring us up to being internationally competitive. So you would list in that group Maryland and Florida and Delaware and Massachusetts that have made gains over the last two decades that are sufficient to bring uh, the whole country up to the level of Finland if all of the states followed those examples. What we don't have is the um, experience of waiting to see how that affects the economy. It might affect, uh, you know, the early signs might be that General Electric was happy to put its headquarters in Massachusetts uh, once they started to observe the quality of the labor force in Massachusetts. But it's still, we're still at a point where we're uh, relying on leading indicators and not the actual outcomes over the long run. But the thing to remember is that if we wait till we get those answers uh, before we invest, we're going to be in trouble. You know, at the international level, the story that I always like to think about is uh, is Korea, which had almost, uh, you know, a, a developing country level of human capital uh, at the end of the Korean War back in the 1950s, and it made huge investments in its school system and huge commitments to uh, improving the achievement level of its population. And uh, it certainly has reaped enormous economic uh, benefits from that in the, uh, in the century or half century since that uh, took place. Well, that's, uh, Korea is just one example. What we see is throughout East Asia, we see a number of examples of countries that have made huge investments in the quality of their schools, 
um, in addition to the quantity, but to the quality in particular. And we've seen that they've had extraordinarily high growth compared to, say, other parts of the world like Latin America, where the quality of the schools has not been very high, and we see that they have completely lagged uh, East Asia and the rest of the world in terms of their economic growth. Yes, and I, I coming closer to home, it seems to me that if you look at uh, the southern part of the United States in the 19th century, where because of the racial division in the society and the fear of uh, black uprisings, they didn't educate a major share of a population, and even white uh, uh, young people were poorly educated. And uh, overcoming that historical legacy has just been uh, a challenge for Southern leaders ever since. Well, it's been a challenge, but you see that there are some places that have been uh, pushing and trying to meet that challenge. Florida is an example, but you have Georgia and Texas that are states that have, in fact, done quite well with their schools and their economies are starting to show that they're becoming uh, national leaders in, in a variety of places. Right, and I'd add North Carolina and Virginia to that list. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, so, it, it, right, states ha do differ in how much commitment they have made to uh, – the quality of their schools over the decades, and uh, and you can see some differences uh, in the payoff uh, over time. So, uh, you know, this is a truly fascinating article and the statistical um, analysis that underpins it. Now, do you have another longer paper? I know when the Education Next, we try to boil things down to make them as readable as possible. Do you have a more extended discussion of this that... Uh, People who really want to see what all the detail is behind your findings, uh, they can do that? Absolutely. Um, they can actually find it on my own website. There are a couple other articles that provide all the technical details of how we constructed our measures of the quality of the workforce in every state, how we took into account migration and immigration, and all of the um, technical details that um, academics like to produce, we have produced. Um, so if they just come to my website, which is just uh, hanashek.stanford.edu, they can find the working papers that provide all the details. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rick. Uh, I've been speaking with Eric Hanashek. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and he and his colleagues have written this really remarkable paper uh, it pays to improve school quality, states that boost student achievement could reap large economic gains, which is available on the Education Next website. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.